Okay, this morning, as we met together, we went to uh, the Lord's table. And as we did that, can I ask you, uh, what was it that was uppermost in your mind? So when there's silence at communion, isn't there? It's a quiet time. Uh, As the bread was passed around, as the wine was passed around this morning, what was it that was occupying your thinking? There's there's a lot of spiritual themes and motifs that you could have been thinking about earlier on. We could have been thinking about the theme of atonement. That would have fitted in with a sermon. We could think about the idea of sacrifice, reconciliation, all of these things. Isn't it true, though, that it's actually quite rare... That at the table, or in our lives, that we consider the theme of the triumph of the cross. It's actually very seldom that we as Christians, that we think about and contemplate the victory. Now, listen, the victory over Satan that the Lord Jesus Christ has won on our behalf. And I think that that's rather unusual and it's rather strange. Because again, isn't this true that victory is actually one of the predominant themes of the whole of the Bible? Isn't it? Triumph. I mean, how does the Bible begin? There's the fall. What did God immediately promise after the fall? What does he promise? Victory promises to crush the head of the serpent. He promises to try to triumph. Then, what do we see in all of the the peaks of the Old Testament, the theological peaks? Isaiah chapter fifty-three. We see again the theme of victory. And then, when we go into the New Testament, what do we see? What is Calvary to God? In the mind of God, it is a battleground. It is the place, it is the location where Christ, the Son of God, has triumphed over death and the devil. Well, uh, tonight we come to one of the best known portions in all, I was going to say all of 1 Samuel, but no, this is one of the best known portions of scripture in all of the Bible. And you know as well as I do, there's a lot of ways we could approach 1 Samuel chapter 17 and David and Goliath. This is what I want us to do this evening. I want us to consider what this portion of scripture tells us about that victory that Christ has won. To read this, to study it, to hear from God about how our anointed one has destroyed the great enemy, the enemy of God, but also the enemy of God's people. And ask this morning, I'm itching to get going. So let's consider first of all, notice with me the ferociousness of the enemy here. How ferocious he is. Now, if you sat through any of this sermon series, I, I reckon this, that the beginning of this portion of scripture is really kind of familiar to you. Don't you think so? Like, yet again, come on, I think it's for the fourth time. What do we see? We see the Philistines encroaching, and we see them threatening the people. We've seen this a lot in First Samuel. I'm the Philistines encroaching the people of God. Now, I want you to make sure you get the, the scene right in your head. Very important here. So what do we have? We've got two mountains. 
two hills opposite each other. Where are the armies? The armies are sitting high up on either mountain. So you get a picture with me, do you? You've got the armies, Israelites, the Philistines facing each other. What's down below? So you've got this valley. You've got kind of the idea of a dried out riverbed. Judging by the stones that he, he chooses, the dried out wadi, a valley down below. We all got the picture? Okay, this is what I would ask you to do though. I would ask you for the purposes of tonight to imagine that you are amongst the Israeli army. I wonder if you can do that. So imagine yourself up high on this mountain, soldiers all around you. Can you do that? Sure you can. And if you do that and you look down into the valley, what do you see? Right now, Goliath appears. And what an appearance. <laughs> Isn't that right? I mean, this guy is a beast. Like, this is a behemoth. This is, this, oh, I was, he's a giant. Like, you do the measurements and you find out that he is just over, I think it's nine foot tall. <laughs> he's a beast of a man. But it's not just his stature, is it? It's his armor. That catches your eye as you, you look down. Now, you know, consider what you're told about Goliath's appearance. First of all, he's got this bronze helmet on his head. Now that, in itself, completely unusual. Like, the warriors, the ancient world, they would have worn a leather cap on their head. They wouldn't have had this bronze helmet. Then, what, what we told, we're told about this coat of mail. Isn't it brilliant? It's heavy. And it's intimidating. It's covering his chest and his legs. And, and, answer me this. Is he armed? You bet your life, he's armed. I mean, he's got a javelin, or I think the idea of a sword. Not only that, he's got a shield and a spear. He's something else. Isn't he something else? What a picture he is. Now, let me ask you this. What do you feel? What do you think you should feel when you read the description? Because it's a detailed description. I mean, God gives it to you for a reason. What do you feel? Do you not feel... Fear? Is there not a sense that what we're supposed to do when we read about Goliath is we are supposed to be intimidated by this, this figure, this man. You are supposed to be intimidated. You know what you're not supposed to do? You're not supposed to miss what he says. Look at verse 8. Verse 8. What does he say? He taunts. And mocks the people of God. But what is it this giant wants? Come on, let's, let's, let's not too, put too fine a point in it. What does he, he wants a fight. Doesn't he? Like he wants a one-on-one battle. He wants a representative from the Israelite people to come to, to, to go head to head with him. And what stake? Did you notice? What is at stake? Everything is at stake. That the seemingly inevitable loss to this giant, it is going to lead to slavery for the people of God. They will all be enslaved. Now, can I ask, do you, do you like David and Goliath? Isn't that brilliant? Isn't it a wonderful story? Isn't it? We know it. We've known it for years, many of us. Love this since our childhood. What are we supposed to think at this point? Well, given this picture, given the parallels with Christ, 
Are we not at this moment to consider the might and the ferocity of the enemy that the Lord Jesus has defeated for us? And even as I say that, isn't it true that we rarely do that? Isn't that true that very rarely do we spend any time pondering the influence and the might and the strength of the evil one? And yet, what does the Bible tell you about Satan? What was Satan? What did he do? Listen, prior to Calvary, Satan reigned. He reigned. Does that sound a little bit dodgy? Does that sound a little bit controversial? I'm not saying that God before Calvary was not God. I'm not saying he wasn't sovereign, but you understand what the Bible tells us. What happened before Calvary? Satan had staged a coup. Isn't that what had happened? That God had almost permitted him, allowed him to usurp power on the earth. What does the Bible say Satan is? He is the prince. Of this world. He is the ruler. Was the ruler of, of the kingdom of the air. You see his power? And so surely when you turn to 1 Samuel 17. You see what humanity desperately needed. There was our enemy. What did we need friends? We needed a representative. We needed someone not just who would go and fight for us. But we desperately needed someone who would win the victory. Lest what would happen to us if we could not find a representative? We would be enslaved. We would face an ongoing, eternal slavery to Satan. So we see his ferociousness. Right, second thing that we see here is the faithfulness of the warrior. The faithfulness of the warrior. Now, come on, let's get this right. Despite the fact that there's been a number of years, I think, that's passed between chapter 16 and chapter 17. Okay, there's a lot of years, I think, that have passed between those two chapters. I think what we've got to appreciate here is that David is still a young guy. You with me on that? Not a little boy, but he's still a young lad. Now, why can we make that assertion? Well, he's clearly not of age for military service yet, is he? And then there's the other idea, that he's still used by his dad as a kind of messenger boy, isn't he? He's going back back and forth between Jesse and his brothers. Now, don't you love how it pans out when David arrives with the messages for, for, his, for his brothers? The timing of it is absolutely perfect, isn't it? Did you see what happens? David arrives... At the front line, and it's just as the point where Goliath is stepping out and you know shouting abuse to the people of God. Now, let me ask you: Do you see how David responds to this? He is, he is furious, isn't he? Like he's enraged, and he's immediately up for the fight. This young guy, and in fact, such is his passion. Did you notice? What happens? Word spreads around the camp, doesn't it? Everyone hears of this young man who's willing to take on this beast. First, Eliab hears about his brother. You can see he's a bit embarrassed about his brother. But it's not an older brother thing to do, isn't it? 
and it gives his young brother a row. First, Eliab here hears. Who else hears? Saul. And so Saul calls for David, interviews him, gives him an interview for the job. And then isn't it remarkable that Saul the king sends this young man who is untrained, ill-equipped, and he sends him out to battle this beast on behalf of the people of Israel. It's incredible. Now, I think this, if we were to treat this portion of scripture like that and skim over all the details at 100 miles an hour, I think we would make a mistake. I think we would see in David and Goliath the way that society treats this story. And you know how that is, don't you? Like everybody knows this story, don't they? So many people in London, even if they don't go to church, they know the story of David and Goliath. And what do they say about David and Goliath? What is it to the culture outside? Don't they say it's a story of bravery? Isn't it? Like don't they view it as kind of a metaphor for taking on a seemingly insurmountable foe. Can you imagine what Hollywood would do with us, you know? Like maybe it would be a young lawyer, and there's first case she takes on, like all the lawyer, the huge lawyer team in a multi-billionaire company or, 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 or whatever, and she wins, and you can see the, sort of, the, the posters on the buses going about London. It's a real David and Goliath story, you see? See the problem with that? That isn't what this story is about. What is this story about? Isn't it about faith? Isn't it? Isn't this story about the, the faith that this young man has in his beloved and covenant God? It is, isn't it? Look with me to verse 37, please. Verse 37. So David tries the job interview. He's trying to convince Saul. And he's talking about bears. And he's fighting lions. But what does he say? David attributes all of this to the power of God. Now, remember, he's a young man. What do young men like to do? They like to be macho, don't they? They like to take all the credit. They like to attribute all of it to their agility and their strength. Oh, let me tell you about that time that I, that I killed a lion. You see, what does David do? Gives all of the glory to, to God, doesn't he? And see, while you're looking at the page, would you do this? Would you just look up to the critical verse? Look up to verse 26. Now this is everything here, verse 26. So Goliath cries out. What does David say? He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Like, do, do, do you see what we learn? What is it that propels this young man into battle? Why does he take on the charge? How would you answer that? What's his concern? Is it for the protection of his brothers? Is that why he fights Goliath? Is it for the protection of the people? It's not that, is it? Why does he do it? Out of concern for the glory of Almighty God. Isn't that it? His chief concern here is the glory of the name of his covenant God. That's what propels him into battle. And when we consider that, I think it has to remedy a view that we often take of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't this true, friends? 
that very often when we think about Calvary, we think about what Christ has done, his death, that we think the primary reason he did that was for you and for me. Don't we? We think he died and he went to the cross. The primary reason was for us. It was for his church. Now he's done it and he saved us and he saved his church. And hallelujah for that. But do you see the slight error? That was not our Lord's primary concern. Our Lord's primary concern, as always, was the glory and honor of the name of his Father. What does he pray at Gethsemane? Now remember, the cross is coming round the corner. The cross is but a few moments away. And even there, the Lord Jesus Christ cries out, Now, Father, glorify your name. Do you see it? As here, our warrior strides into battle. Why? He does so because he knew that the name of his God, the name of Yahweh, was at stake. So we see the fearfulness and we see the faithfulness And then thirdly, we see the feebleness of the weaponry. The feebleness of the weaponry. I have read the story of David and Goliath incorrectly, for I am 39 years old, so for most of my life. (laughs) And this week I've had to, to go back over it. I always thought that David did not wear Saul's armor because it didn't fit him. Maybe children's Bibles have a lot to answer for, don't they? With their pictures of David as a child. And well you can see that that's not the case here, can you not? The the reason that he doesn't wear Saul's armor, he's not a warrior. He's not in the army and he, he just doesn't, he just doesn't feel right rather than not fit. Now how does he go into battle? How does he go into battle? He goes in with the stones, the five stones that he's chosen. What else does he take? Bet the boys notice this. What does he take? What's his weapon? It's a sling. Now we can't think of that as a toy. We can't think of that as something pathetic. But when you compare it to Goliath's armory, it is pretty feeble, isn't it? Compared to the javelin, the sword, and the chain, he's got a sling. And isn't that what is underlined for you in Goliath's response to David? Don't you, come on, we look down the valley, what do we see? We see Goliath laughing. Now David, Maybe you can picture it, can you? This giant sees the, the, the boy, the young man come towards him and he's cursing him. <laughs> and he's, is this what you've got, Israel? Young guy, and you, you're coming to me with stones. <laughs> this way, and he's laughing, and he's laughing, and he laughs until, <laughs> until David hits him with the most precise shot and brings him down. They see all of that brings me to a question, a question that I ask of this portion of scripture. Why does God use this feebleness? You ever ask that of 1 Samuel chapter 17? 
Like, why is it that he uses just a young guy with a sling? Why doesn't God defeat Goliath using a normal warrior? Yeah? Why not just one of the Israelites takes on the charge, takes out his sword and beats... Why does? Why does he use a young guy? Why with a sling? Do you want the answer for that? I don't have to give it to you. Look at verse 47. Dave, God <laughs> does the exposition of the text. God tells you why it was a sling. What does David say? He says, it's happened like this, that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. Read the next bit. And that. Why does it happen? Why young guy? Why like this, the feebleness? So that people may know that. Listen, the Lord saves, but not with sword and spear. Do you see it? Why does, why does he use a sling? Why is it a young... So that everyone will know. The God does not act in salvation... In conventional ways, he does not use human wisdom. Our God is a God who uses weakness. And this is difficult for me, in a sense, because I have to go back and correct myself. You see, if you've been here for the sermon series, you know... That we've encountered that theme before. That God uses weakness. Haven't we? And every time that we've seen that, I've said the same thing. I've said, oh, that's great news for us. Because that means that God can use us. We are nothing, most of us, by human standards and illness and age and so forth. And if we're lonely, God can use us. That's been my message three, four times in First Samuel, right? Hasn't it? That's not enough. It's not enough. Because that's not what the Bible is saying to you tonight. That's not what David is declaring. No. Why has God used a sling? It's not that God can use weakness. It's that God does use weakness. And that is marvelous news. And it has to be stronger for us tonight. Because if you are lowly and nothing in the eyes of society, it's not that God might use you. No. If you are concerned for the glory of Almighty God, the truth is that God will use you and use you for his honor and the praise of his holy name. And if you want confirmation of that, where do you look? You look here? Where else? You look to the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because don't you see the weakness that God used? Born in poverty. I mean, born amongst donkeys and dirt. Born a carpenter. Healing from the most contemptible of towns, Nazareth. Have you ever thought about this? Our Lord Jesus Christ had nothing material to his name throughout his life. Nowhere for the Son of Man to lay his head. Do you see the weakness that though pure and innocent, beset by all manner of men? And just to the point where you just, you can't imagine... 
that it would get any more pathetic and any weaker. What happens to Jesus? What was the weapon of weakness he used to destroy his enemy? Not a sling. A stake. A wooden stake in the ground. Do you see it? What do you see when you look at Calvary? What do you see when you look at the cross? You see our Lord saves, but not with sword or spear. And then we end, we conclude tonight with the last thing, a fourth thing. Just a word on the fullness of the triumph. The ferociousness of the enemy, the faithfulness of the warrior, the feebleness of the weaponry, and the fullness of the triumph. I wonder if you remember why I asked you to do it at the start of the sermon. Do you remember? I asked you to try and visualize yourself up a hill. And you're looking down. Now, if you did that, and if you do it just now, do you realize what you've just seen? You've just seen this young lad hurl a stone and it's hit Goliath in his forehead. And just like Dagon, earlier on in the book, what's happened? Goliath has fallen flat on his face. Now, isn't it the totality and the comprehensiveness of the victory? Isn't that what's underlined? Because what does David do next? You see, there's haste in the text. Haste. He sprints. He runs to Goliath. He picks up the sword, surely two hands, raises it high, and he cuts off Goliath's head. And listen, he takes that head to Jerusalem, where surely he holds it up high on display. (laughs) Marvelous, isn't it? If a little brutal... I want to end by just pointing you to the participation here of the people of God. Because do you see what we're told in verse 42? Love it. So at that point, we've got to be in it, engage with it. Just as the point, Goliath's head is rolling on the ground. Do you see what the people around you do? They rise. And they roar. They shout. And then they run with all the energy they have down that hill, down in the valley, up the other side, and they chase Philistines. And they kill them. They slaughter the Philistines. And I wonder if you see the pertinent message in that for you tonight, London City Presbyterian Church. Because yes, in this portion of Scripture, we see the completeness, the comprehensiveness of Christ's victory, But do you not also see what our job and our role is in 2018? We, the people of God, are to pick up our spiritual weapons after this great victory. The weapons of righteousness and faith and truth and prayer. What do we do? We run. And after this victory, we pursue our sin. Isn't that it? That we, the people of God, the army of Almighty God, we chase down our wickedness, our sin, our immorality, our, our evil, and we put it to death in the power and the name of Almighty God. And as we do that, we must have one eye on the future. Because what do you know, Christian friends, is going to happen? This. One day we will gather together in the city of Almighty God. (laughs) 
We will stand behind our victor, our warrior king in the new Jerusalem. What will we see? We will see the head of our enemy dead and destroyed that Satan and sin shall at last and forever be no more. Surely as we do that, until that day comes, we rejoice in the theme of the triumph of the cross. And what we take and put in our pocket, we cling to our heart as we go out, is Romans 8.37. Because what does Paul say that you are, Christian friend? We are more than conquerors. And how? How? All because of the victory that our warrior, our saviour has achieved on our behalf. Let's pray.